Thank you. Um, well, for those of you who are given to timing things, can I just say this isn't the start of the sermon? Um, I've got something for you to do first, and then I'll tell you when you can start your stopwatches. Um, I want you, please, uh, to uh, buzz to each other for a moment, and then I'll ask for responses. Um, What I want to know from you is, how did you learn to ride... Well, I want you to learn from each other. How did you learn to ride a bike? What was the process by which you learned to ride a bike? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, Now, I'm guessing the majority answer is by the fixing of training wheels. How many people had training wheels stuck on their their bike? Okay? Yeah, that's pretty much the majority answer. So, I thought it would be more interesting to hear from those who didn't have training wheels uh, put on their bikes. So, uh, anyone who thought the other person's story of not having training wheels sounded like kind of interesting, uh, prod them and get them coming up here, please. I'm going to have, have, we'll have, we have time for two. But it could be a long wait. <laughs> Not the training wheels. Come on. Hey, come on, up you come. Yep. Thanks, Nigel. Oh, for, oh first, okay, fine. Thank you. That wasn't funny. Thank you, Brian. I used to go with a friend when I was about 14, and he had a a paper round of what we call the moor. This is in Yorkshire, of course. Um, He had a bike, and I didn't. And uh, when we got to the top, the very furthest farm, um, he said, do you want a ride? And I said, yeah. He said, go on then. So I just got on, and of course we were at the top of this hill. It wasn't very steep, um, but it went on quite a straight road. So I just got on and went down there. I can't remember (laughs) how I stopped. But I know it was a very old bike, and you know they had those um, brakes where it went across the middle and then there were all these rods and things. Um, And when you pulled the brake lever hard, the brakes fell off. (laughs) Um, But I'm still here. Thank you. (laughs) Go on, Nigel. Well, my dad bought me an old bike at Acles Sale, and um, uh, it was uh, learning as you went. So he said, right, sit on the saddle. He held the back. We ran for about five yards, and then he let go and said, go. And of course, I went and then fell off. <laughs> and so uh, you then did it again until you stopped falling off after about the third time. And that was Thank it. you very much. Thank you. Do you go? Thank you. Don't take exit. That's... Um, uh, that second one is intriguing on Father's Day. Um, they've done, uh, scienti- social scientists have done studies to discover what fathers are for. Um, and uh, it, it turns out that one of the main things that fathers are for is the management of risk. 
they, um, they went to a beach and they plotted where mothers and fathers took their children in the water. And consistently, the fathers took the children much further out than the mothers did and then said, now swim to me. The idea being that you would trust your father to be there as a safe pair of hands to collect you, whereas the mothers, it seems, were much more protective. Now, obviously, that's uh, like all social science. It's just one of those kind of 80% things. Lots of people, after all, uh, have to have... uh, those in their family who act as mothers and fathers to them. So I don't quite know where they would be on the beach. Uh, but it is interesting that that does... What it appears to be that fathers are, in some ways, uh, there for the management of risk. Um, Andy Bunter, one of our assistants, was uh, with his uh, uh, toddler, Isaac, uh, a day or so uh, ago. When Was it yesterday? Friday, thank you. And um, he, uh, Isaac was on the roundabout, small roundabout, and he was having great fun and going, Wee! So uh, Andy thought it'd be much more fun to pr- pr- go make him go faster. And so he went, whee! And then Andy thought it'd be more fun to go even faster. And then Isaac fell off and broke his hand. Uh, Isaac is all right, you'll be glad to know. But it does remind us that fathers are there for the management of risk. So now the sermon starts. Let me tell you my own answer to that, uh, uh, that question. Uh, I don't know how old I was, but it happened in England. We moved to England when I was six, so it must have been uh, six that I was. All I remember about the bike was it had wide white uh, tyres, didn't have any rods down there. That was, ooh, that was impressive, that. Um, my dad stood behind me and looped a scarf around my chest and under my arms, and um, I took off down the garden with my father running behind me, holding the scarf to hold up the whole package, as it were. He held me up while I learned to pedal. He made it safe for me to take on the risks of making something with two wheels not fall over. Uh, I think I have a vague memory that he did it as well when we left the garden and went onto the pavement for a while. But no doubt, like Nigel, I had my fair share of falling over uh, later on. At the end of the sermon, I, and no doubt in a different way, will... Uh, at the end of the service, will say to you, go your way. Sermon over, service over. Go your way now into the way that is marked out for you this evening, this week, into a life that is yours and not someone else's. It's not the most exciting farewell, but it recognises that whatever this has been, that's over now, your life continues. And it's how the book of Daniel ends. Would you please turn to Daniel and page 12, the reading we had, it's on page 898. What we're going to find out tonight is what is it that makes us safe to take the risks that life and God require of us. Chapter 12 of Daniel, well, it begins on page uh, 898 at the very bottom, uh, verse 9, and then again in verse 13, Daniel is told, go your way. But he's been in the company of angels. And he has had revelations from God. So that the way Daniel goes can never be the same again. And what we're here tonight to do is to spend a little time learning what Daniel learned. So that if we do, then when we are told later, go your way, 
the way we go will be different from the way we thought it might be when we came in this evening. Let me pass the book of Daniel for you in review. Um, uh, Richard, could we have the first screen? Thank you. There's a very cheesy Sunday school type um, picture of the book of Daniel. Um, Google images of Daniel and Bible, and you'll find huge numbers of pictures of Daniel looking like an Old Testament prophet. It would appear that all the people who've done the image, the drawing, have never paid attention to what the book says. It says he was young. I think that matters. I guess given the life, the sort of average lifespan of that time, if he was young, he was probably somewhere between 16 and 18. He was a captive in Babylon. God's people had been exiled to Babylon. And it was the policy of the Babylonians to uh, make, in a sense, to make good servants, if not friends, of their enemies. And so he was put into civil servant school. That's basically what the story of Daniel is about. And there you've got Daniel, who's in white, uh, not looking, I have to say, particularly Jewish, uh, sitting in front of a king who's describing the dream. And what I want to do with you is just go through the book of Daniel. Could we have the next slide? Thank you, Richard. I'll probably put this up on Facebook. Um, so you don't have to worry about taking notes if that's the sort of thing you do. Daniel comes in two parts. And it's, it's one of the most logically arranged biblical books. Fortunately, everything that matters happens in whole chapter chunks, uh, which makes life an enormous lot easier for people like me. First off, we'll do this very quickly, and that's why I'll put it up on Facebook. First off, the captured servants of the people of Israel ask, uh, we don't want the uh, fa- uh, posh food, fancy food of our captors. It's probably been offered to idols. It may have some pork in it. So we just like, uh, we would want greens. And that probably explains the deeply biblical reference in Ben's story earlier to possibly they were scrawny and skinny. I don't know. But they eat greens much to the king's amazement and they flourish on it. Secondly, the king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a, a statue in different parts with from a a gold head to clay feet. And Daniel is the only one who can interpret it for him. Then Nebuchadnezzar uh, builds a huge statue of gold entirely and uh, demands that uh, everyone worships it. And uh, Daniel and his friends uh, say, no, we won't. And they get thrown into a fire from which they are rescued because they don't burn. Uh, Next, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, which again Daniel interprets, saying, uh, explaining to him that you're actually going to lose your mind for a while. And when he gets his, Nebuchadnezzar does lose his mind for a while, and when he gets his mind back, he says, "Praise the Lord." Uh, Then the uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son uh, Belshazzar holds a great feast, uh, and he hasn't. He's paid no attention uh, to what Daniel and others have said, and there's a, a, a moving hand writes on the wall. And uh, Daniel along, again comes along and explains what is written, that you have been found wanting and you are judged. And uh, there's writing of judgment, and Daniel again comes through it unscathed. And then finally, there is a command to worship the king himself. And uh, they say, thank you, but no, we won't. That's when Daniel opens the doors and prays ostentatiously to his own God, and it gets thrown for his pains into the lion's den. 
That's the end of chapter 6. Now we move to part 2 of Daniel. It's completely different. That's where the seriously weird stuff starts to happen. Dreams and visions and goats and animals. and um, It's only probably... um, uh, The only weirder bit is probably in Revelation. So Daniel himself now. Dreams of four beasts and the angel explains. And interestingly, in... in, uh, uh, Chapter 7, we get the reference that Jesus himself seems to pick up. When he calls himself a son of man, that seems to be picked up from Daniel 7. And there is inside uh, Daniel 7 uh, a set of references to the glory that will come the way of the son of man. Then in chapter 8, he has a vision of a ram and a goat. And finally, the great destroyer will be destroyed. Surprisingly, that nine changes the tone, and there's a confession of sin, not by the people, but on behalf of the people, from Daniel himself, saying, we really made a mess of things, that's why we're in exile, we understand it, please forgive us. In chapter 10, he has another vision, and this time, it's a vision of what I've called there the lightning man. It's almost certain that the picture of Jesus that happens in Revelation chapter 1 is taken from the picture of the lightning man in Daniel chapter 10, the one with a face like lightning, with gold and fine linen all around him. Gabriel then, very uh, end of chapter 10, explains the, the big vision of what the lightning man has been involved with. And it is actually, turns out to be, a vision of a final conflict between the south and the north. And then towards the end of chapter 12, as we heard, Daniel says, well, when? When's all this going to happen? And what's it going to look like? And Gabriel says, shut up. Almost literally. He says, the vision is shut up. You are not going to learn any more. However, you have seen what you need to know. It will happen when it happens. Your job, Daniel, is simply to wait. So that's the breakdown of what happens in Daniel. What I want to point out is that without exception, in every single one of those chapters where there's any reaction to the narrative, when anyone says anything because any of those things have happened, what they say always is as follows. Daniel's God is the only God, the living God Most High, and he is in charge of people, events, and nations. The God of Daniel's people is in charge. Now, when we want to be posh and uh, use long words for meaning uh, in, in chargeness, the in-chargeness of God we call his sovereignty. And it is the theme of Daniel. And that's really the kind of springboard for everything we need to get to tonight. Because talk to people who are not believers. I don't suppose we, in our conversation with unbelievers, do get this far. But if you do, talk to those who are not believers. And they will often assume that this sovereignty, and we've sung about it, it must have a consequence. If God is in charge of your lives... That means you aren't. So those who believe in God's sovereignty must be passive people, 
sitting back, letting God get on with it, do everything. And you can kind of see why they would think that. But it's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. Down through history, it's those who believe that God is in overall charge who have been most active seeking change. Think of the great 19th century social reformers and the difference they made. But they were those who knew that God was in charge. Perhaps it's that only when we know the final outcome are we able to throw ourselves wholeheartedly into activity that might not make sense if God isn't in charge. After all, if it's all up for grabs, why would you make a difference to the beggar tomorrow? Why would you go the next day to someone who's in need and perhaps go the extra mile with them? Because it probably won't matter. Why bother? It's when we know who's in charge finally that we know the actions that matter. What uh, seeks to make a difference to over there or over there in life won't really change anything that matters if everything's uncertain. But if we know that our God has won the war, then we will do all we can to wage battles that have a God character to them. And in fact, down history, God people, godly people have acted as the most responsible of peoples. Well, that's a, an argument, but I said something about Scripture. Uh, and from Daniel, you'd have to say the same. Flick back to chapter 9, if you would. There, set out, and you can see it set out in different type, is the long prayer of confession from Daniel. We've had, by chapter 9, mounting evidence that the God of Daniel is in charge of history. Well, if he's in charge of history, but the response that we should have is just passive, why does Daniel bother confessing the sins of his people? Through Daniel, the people are taking responsibility for their own sinfulness. Surely if God's in charge, it's not relevant, it doesn't matter. But sin does matter, and Daniel knew it. Human action does matter, and Daniel knew it. Our responsibility is with us precisely because we have a God who holds us responsible. We believe, we are the ones who believe, that the universe has a moral, responsible character to it. The God who is in charge of everything is the one who holds us responsible, so we have responsibility. In fact, it's those who do believe that God is sovereign, who have fully embraced human responsibility and acted with courage. We were made to be courageous. Mike Hill uh, today has put up on uh, our Facebook uh, page. Actually, have you done it on our Facebook page? On yours, it's on yours, isn't it? So, if you make friends with Mike on Facebook and um, ha- have a look at it, but it's a song from Casting Crowns. It's rather good. We were made to be courageous in the face of life's challenges because we know who holds the answers to them. 
And I want to be clear about this, because this really matters. The world really does believe that we are the irresponsible ones. Whereas, in fact, it's the other way around. We are responsible because God holds us responsible. There is no one to hold the world responsible, according to the world's own thinking. If God is in charge, then we can and must act with courage, not with cowardice, with faith, not with fear, with boldness, not with timidity. And if that's established as a kind of groundwork for tonight, then I want to deal with two kinds of courage in the face of God's sovereignty. hope I'm not being naive. I'm hoping that facing many different kinds of challenge, and I know some of what some of you are facing, there will be a kind of courage for each of us so that you can say, yes, I can do that and I must do that. And I want to suggest there's a confrontational kind of courage and there's a constant kind of courage. Confrontation and constancy. Confrontation happens when we are, as, uh, when it, as, as it were, on the offensive. We take our courage in both hands and we go out there to tackle something dreadful. There's lots of examples. This is the week after all, weekend after all, where we've been remembering Waterloo. Well, there's a good example of something offensive when confrontation was needed. But Jesus shows that kind of courage, confrontation courage, when he confronts the money changers in the temples. He upends their, uh, their tables. He is furious. He makes a whip and drives them out of the temple. He confronts them. Or another time, when the, great, when the priests are having their great festival where they light the lights, and Jesus walks into the middle of them and says, See that? Yeah, it's about me. I'm the light of the world. It's the faith of the psalmist. Psalm 118 and Psalm 56 both have the same line. In the Lord I trust, what can man do to me? It was echoed in uh, uh, Hebrews 13 as we heard it read. It's the faith of Archbishop Latimer, martyred under the Tudor Queen Mary. He would say, Latimer, Latimer. Thou art going to speak before the high and mighty King Henry VIII, who is able, if he think fit, to take thy life away. But Latimer, Latimer, remember also thou art about to speak before the King of Kings. Take heed that thou dost not displease him. And in the story of Daniel, we find Daniel, who presumably prayed regularly. It's when the command comes to worship the king that Daniel says, (laughs) opens his windows and prays ostentatiously so that everyone can see him to his God. He's just doing what he's always done, but he's doing it with the windows open. That is taking his courage in both hands. Or some time when he says to some high servant, yeah, let me go to the king. I'll go to the king. Yeah, there's terrible judgment, I know, but you're about to deal with. No, don't don't bother yet. I'll go to the king and I'll tell him his dream. Now, I suggest that's confrontational courage, going out there, taking action, doing something. And yet there's also something we might call constant courage. And in the Christian life, it is as important, not more, not less, but just as important. You may have been here last week when Will told us 
of the 180 followers of Jesus who are martyred for their faith, killed for following Jesus every month. Many will simply have been killed for being followers of Jesus, not for confronting, just being. Much of Daniel is about that kind of constant faith. No, we won't worship the king or to the lions with them. Not for what they've done, but for what they won't do. We'll just eat the veggies, thanks. Or as in this end chapter, when Daniel says, what, when? And Gabriel says, your job is just to wait, but you wait knowing the end. Well, of course, confrontation comes out of constancy and constancy out of confrontation. After all, I wonder what kind of confrontations Mary had to put up with because she had said to Gabriel, let it be to me as the Lord had said. They'd have spat on her in those days because she conceived a baby out of wedlock. What confrontations did she have to put up with and yet her courage was constant? Let it be to me as the Lord had said. To the man, Daniel, Gabriel comes with stories of great battles. To the woman, Mary, he comes with the news that she will have a son. And she says, okay. But of course, what greater instance is there of constant faith, constant courage, than in the one who went to the cross, knowing that according to Matthew, his father could have sent 12 legions of angels. It must take some kind of courage to take a human life. But what kind of courage does it take to turn to a killer and say, we forgive you, as the families of Charleston have said this weekend? Not confrontation, but constant. Now, I'm not saying there's a big difference between the two, but I mention them because of a danger. If I say to you tonight that you can be and must be courageous, then you will think of the active confrontational courage, the kind that you can play games about on your Xbox. Yeehaw kind of courage. The world thinks of that as being the only real courage. And we do need the courage that goes out. After all, if, as according to what we've sung, we are to call the nations to Jesus, we do have to do some confronting. But most of Daniel's courage is constant courage, a stubborn insistence on doing what God wants in the face of commands, temptations, or threats to do something else. And that's the kind of courage we may most frequently need. See, here's an example. It doesn't even sound like you need any kind of courage, does it, to read your Bible? And yet we don't do it. Will has told me this week that he turned up at Trinity assuming that there'd be 70% of us reading our Bibles on a very frequent basis and 30% who didn't. And in fact, his experience seems to be that it runs the other way around. It does take courage to set aside time to read our scripture. Because there are a thousand voices in our world saying, don't bother. It doesn't matter. It's not real. One more day won't make a difference. You won't become a different person through that. Going to church is enough. 
A conference once a year is enough. Meeting up with your mates, that's enough. No. Faithful, patient reading of Scripture makes you the constant, courageous man or woman who is ready to confront when it is needed. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews quotes that moment, in God I will trust, what can man do to me? In the context of family relationships, those of us who are in family relationships, and I, I speak today as a father, Marriage should be honoured, says the writer. And what of all the other family relationships? They take constant courage because one day the confrontational moment may be upon us. There are those of you who will come here week by week constantly and it takes courage because your friends will laugh at you and you will be invited to deny that you were in church on Sunday. Constant, faithful, persevering courage may be needed again and again. Why is it worth it? Because you never know when a Daniel moment is going to be presented. These guys were young, and they already had constancy in courage. You may be called on to confrontation. I think of a quiet, unassuming woman in our congregation who blew the whistle within her firm when she realized as an accountant that something was very dodgy in the bookkeeping. She confronted. She lost her job. She didn't get it back. There's been no happy ending yet. And that's the point. If every courageous moment had a happy ending, then part two of Daniel would not be needed. If we only confronted and stood constant when we knew guaranteeably there'd be a happy result, we'd never do it because you can never guarantee outcomes immediately. And that's the point of part two. Once we know that behind the powerful forces of this world, behind the movements of countries and empires, is the drumbeat of another conqueror marching. Once you know that there is a higher throne, once you know that final victory is assured, then we may lose battles, but we know that the war will be won. Then and only then will we have the moral courage to choose to stand alone. Courage of the Xbox sort looks very attractive, but courage of the Bible sort is desperately lonely most of the time because the world is big and loud and powerful, And without the Daniels to show the godly character that is constant and confronting courage, we just might never do it. Gabriel's answer from God to Daniel's question makes it safe for Daniel to carry on doing courageous things. It's what God, in one sense, is for, like Dad's. And so go your way, but with courage. I'm going to leave a moment of silence, and I want you just to spend that silence, and it'll be a minute. I know it's late, but it'll be a minute. You decide where God is asking you to make that stand of courage.
And so God gave you courage to take his way and make it your way. Amen.